Hi everyone. Today we have an interview with David A. Binks. David A. Binks is a writer, researcher, and educator. His work has appeared in publications like Real Life, The Baffler, Protein, and Streak Wave. Currently, he is working on a book about social media influencers and cities with the University of California Press. He is also acting as a visiting professor at University of Albany, SUNY, as well as the director of the Globalization Studies Program. Today, we talked to him about the future of cities, tourism, capitalism, and the purpose of creation. Hope you enjoy. David A. Banks, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much for having me. So you're going to read a little bit for us from Where Do You Live? This intriguing piece that outlines your views on the future of cities. Yeah, so the, yeah, this was an E-Flux architecture. An architect wakes up to a chirping phone. She sits up and looks at the messages that prompted the noisy wake-up call. Her banking app says she'll have $500 spending cash this month. It suggests several experiences she may pay for with this money. Drone racing in Brooklyn, a walking tour of modern art in Soho, or wine tasting in Suffolk County. She makes $200,000 a month, but she hasn't had this much to play with in a long time. $160,000 is gone before it even hits her bank account. Some of it is in taxes, but two-thirds of her annual income goes directly to Ali Uber the mega company that resulted from a series of mergers and acquisitions in the late 20s. Our architect rarely thinks in dollars, euros, or renminbi, since most of her purchases are withdrawn from an allowance of credits, which can be redeemed at bars, restaurants, yoga studios, and even the local aquarium. The rest is funneled to other annual subscriptions that are not yet controlled by this single company that is also her landlord at home and work, primary source of food, and utility provider. Our architect does not own or even rent the room she woke up in. The six figures she sends to Ali Uber, just like the music and movies she enjoys, gives her access to a catalog of different fully furnished places to live. Her last two employment contracts required proof that she was subscribed to this kind of service. Her labor is both in and on demand, so she is never sure if she'll need to spend days, weeks, or months on site in Seoul, Los Angeles, Berlin, or Lagos. All she has to do is give two weeks notice and a new fully furnished room will be waiting for her in a new city. Her Ali Uber subscription means that whenever she has to move, she can just cram whatever she doesn't rent. Now, nothing more than her mother's old jewelry, a favorite sweater and a travel mug into a vintage Herschel duffel bag and catch the next flight out of town. This time it's to Dubai. She still has plenty to do before decamping to the UAE. The architect gets dressed and has the usual provided breakfast in her building's shared kitchen. Her building mates say they'll miss her. One will be joining her in Dubai, it's just a coincidence, next month. Others promise to use one of their five annual moving vouchers to visit. She wishes everyone well and heads down the block to Whole Foods. She remembers her parents used to use a similar subscription service to get discounted food, but now you need to be an Ali Uber member to afford anything in the store. Paying with cash can be anywhere between 10 to 50% more expensive. She gets snacks for the trip, and they'll all be debited from the food portion of her account. She makes sure everything is all right with her flight in a coffee shop that is also only for Ali Uber members. Turns out her flight has been moved up by an hour. She's planned on saving some money by taking a sponsored car trip that had a mandatory stop at a new burrito chain, but flight times, like the weather, are increasingly harder to predict. She'll have to use some of that extra spending cash on top of her allotted car trips and go straight to the airport. After getting to the gate, her subscription level gets her into a shorter security line and early boarding group. She reads the news. Out in the suburbs of Cleveland, longtime residents are frustrated that they can barely use their downtown without an Ali Uber subscription. Half the cafes, stores, and bars are for subscribers only. I went right into my favorite diner, Levin's a woman returning to her hometown to take care of her elderly father. But they said they don't take cash. You need Ali Uber credits to buy anything. Our architect tries to remember the last time she bought something that wasn't debited to her Ali Uber account. She struggles to remember the denominations of cash that still circulate in the United States and has no clue what they are in the UAE. The car that picks her up from the airport is driven by a man that is new to the city as well. He judiciously follows the directions on his phone, and her final destination is easy to spot thanks to the unified design language of Ali Uber's residential entryways that stand out against the finely curated vernacular architecture of the rest of the building. 
When she arrives in her new place, jet-lagged but excited about the new city she'll be calling home this month, she admires the regional touches to the room. In New York, her dresser had a brass model of a subway car on it. Here it is a piece of intricately woven Bedouin tapestry framed in a shadow box. In the shared kitchen, she learns that the bagel and schmear she enjoyed every Sunday is to be replaced with couscous and dates. She feels a pang of homesickness, but it is quickly overpowered by a familiar love of the new. Kind of frightening, and we can kind of see just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> when I asked myself, you mentioned this piece of the Ali Uber, the We Company, this subscription model of living and the loss mm. of authentic experience. But on the one hand, I don't want to be owned by a company. I've never been owned except for a few brief early jobs, but I've always worked for myself. So the idea of that is frightening. But I asked myself, would I trade this autonomy if it meant bringing into the world a truly circular economy, a city state mm. in harmony with nature? I mean, would you see yeah. autonomy? Yeah, right. The answer to that question, I imagine, changes with different material conditions, right? And what the uh, saying no forces you into, right? If it's some sort of hellscape where you don't have any resources and it's like, but you're free, you know, like that sounds actually a lot like the United States, positive and negative freedoms there, right? But yeah, it's a really hard decision to make. And I, I'm not going to pretend that I am immune to that sort of siren song because just last week, my wife and I went to Boston for a short vacation and we stayed in this little like, capsule hotel from this Dutch firm called Citizen M. And the room is super, super tiny. It's about the width of the bed, but they have great amenities in the common rooms. There's like a, a really nice bar and, and a couple other things. And we loved it. It was one of the best parts of the trip, right? And so like, I'm not gonna pretend that I don't love my treats. I love treats. But I think increasingly those sorts of decisions that you just posed, the pot's going to be sweetened, I think, a lot more than we expect. Maybe you can mention some of those sweetened pots, the lure, and whether you would subscribe to a city-state version of it, because I know you're uh -huh. writing a lot about urban planning and cities. I don't want to be owned by a corporation. I feel myself maybe if it was more of an organized city-state. Yeah. You do look at organized city-states like Singapore. Right. And they're one, it's called like the one service app or something like that. They do have a, an app that's like very, you'd call it like consumer oriented, but for government, where this one app lets you do everything from pay your utility bills to identify plants in the public gardens to snitch on other people if they're not wearing a mask in the right place, which in big crisis situations, who knows? I'm not one to tell whether that's a good idea or not necessarily. But what I think is much more disturbing, and I, I can definitely say that I don't like this, is that guest workers that come into Singapore to build most of that city are required to keep a very similar app on their phones and on their person and are tracked very closely to stay in dormitories when they're not on the construction site. And so there's quite often a double-edged sword to these convenience apps. It's the convenience for whom, you know, that we need to be watching out for. And quite often it's useful to a more privileged class of people. And then for other people, it's mandatory and it doesn't give you any of the fun stuff. Yeah, I guess maybe I'm looking at the bright side of it. It's not quite city states, but it's more participatory. And as we're thinking about localisms versus globalism, I would like to think of that there's a, a third way. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it comes down to the political economy, right? Your technologies can carry with them their own politics. They definitely do. I come from a science and technology studies background, which, you know, that's like our mating call. Like you just, you have to say that all the time. That's our slogan. But then the flip side is, I do think though, that some technologies can have vastly different political characteristics in different material conditions. So if you live in a place that has a fairly small degree of inequality, then I think a lot of these technologies can be nice and useful and good. But politics has to happen first, I think. And you mentioned that America is already free, but sort yourself out. Yeah. You're in Troy. You teach urban planning. You reflect on globalization. You also advise on urban planning for Troy? No, I used to do some consulting work. That's all. So you go around as a professor of urban planning, the importance of a good design. What are you teaching your students? Do you go around with a notebook just commenting on seeing all the design flaws? I mean, <laughs> I, I would find that so frustrating. I often see things that are badly designed, but how do you take it to the next level? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of my classes are around culture, globalization, and design. But actually, my, one of my favorite courses to teach is uh, called Community Development and Neighborhood Planning. They're very generic course titles. I have a hard time keeping them in my brain. But, you know, in that one, first you have to dispel a lot of the notions in the American context of like how government works and how 
government provisions goods and services. It's not always, you know, you find someone that you like running for office and then you choose them and then they do things for you, right? Like that's not how government works in reality. It's not how you get things done. If you want things done, you have to enroll organizations and create social movements and make it happen. And so when I look at cities, you look at that and you're like, man, that intersection could really be a roundabout. I feel like that would be a lot better. You know, you think of stuff like that. And if I'm in class with my students and we come to that, I'm like, okay, well, first let's think about why the roundabout isn't there. And that we can think about a long history of design choices, what sorts of, I guess you could call um, knowledge regimes or different places of expertise that go into the planning of cities. And in the American context, there's a lot of military industrial work. A lot of cities were designed to basically be industrial manufacturing centers, which means you want nice, rigid, centered grid system and Americans love professionalization. You don't have to actually know anyone. You can just look at their degree on their wall and you're set. Whereas if you look at like Paris, for example, after Paris is rebuilt, you get these grand boulevards meeting in these large circles. And that is both a military decision that is, it makes the city easier to defend both from enemies within and without, but it's also an artistic expression. And there's far less artistic expressions that warrant a traffic light intersection instead of a nice big roundabout with Arc de Triumph in it and stuff like that. And then if you actually want a roundabout in your neighborhood, you have to think, well, who owns the property on all four sides of that intersection? And what's the rate of traffic flow? And so I really do try to get them to think at all different angles about the property regimes, the different sorts of expertise that go in there, and just like the facts on the ground. All of those things have to be thought of at the exact same time. When Haussmann rebuilt Paris, right, he's taking orders from Bonaparte of how to rebuild a city that is both easy to defend and is spectacular. You want to show off to the rest of Europe that this is the center of civilization. I really found it interesting what you were talking about when it comes to like what the city's built for and like who it's built for. I'm from Washington, D.C., and I feel like that's a big thing here because gentrification is becoming a big thing recently in the last 10 years. Growing up, like there's a lot of places. I go to college in New York now, but I come back every summer and I just see like all the things that have changed recently and they've had more time to do urban development. But a lot more people have moved here for the sake of like I guess you talk about it in your article, Where Do You Live? But they moved here for the sake of authenticity, like the DC experience, which is centered on politics, but it's also centered on things that I grew up with locally. Like this city is known as Chocolate City, for example. That's the authentic marketing strategy. There's Georgetown here that we have in DC. One thing that is built, the urban planning, we could call it a flaw, but really it's just a way to keep the class divided. Parts of the city are built for one aspect of people and other parts of the city are built for another aspect. Georgetown's one of our more urban, very hip, I guess you could call it sort of the Soho of DC, um, but it doesn't really have many like metro stations at all. And that's where it comes back to urban planning, the sense where it's built to be authentic, but in terms of access, in terms of who it's actually meant for, it's not really meant for a lot of the locals in order to go there. It's meant for tourists. I think this connects a lot to your article where we talk about this idea of authenticity and how that's used as a marketing strategy. So I was wondering what we consider like the new authenticity in cities to be aesthetic and how does that change the way we look at cities? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Like, how would you tackle that issue? Wow, Lauren, thank you so much for that really interesting question. Yeah, so there, there's a couple things going on here, right? First, we have to look at who is the city for? And I usually start with Henri Lefebvre in the production of space and also what he says about the right to the city, which is actually inscribed in a law in Brazil, and I think it only in Brazil. But the idea is that it is not an individual right, it is not a right that we think about from like Enlightenment era, liberal with the lowercase l politics. The right to the city can only be realized in collectivity, in groups, and that the right to the city is to, you know, make it yours, both aesthetically, like you were talking about, Right. It, you should look out to the city and be like, oh, yeah, that's mine. I live here. This is where I belong. With, while also very materially being able to feed yourself, get around, get to work, uh, all, all that stuff. So it's a very holistic kind of right that, again, the individuals alone can't really realize. So starting with that, you, you start to think like, OK, well, like, how do you look at a city and realize, oh, this is my place? A lot of the time graffiti comes into play in that, like that's a statement of this is sometimes literally this is mine, or at least like I belong here. I have the right to change the city in that way. You know, May 68 in Paris had a lot of 
graffiti unit for exactly that reason. And I, and I think it continues on in the 70s and 80s in New York City with wild style graffiti and stuff like that. It's, it, it's a very similar kind of respect for the city in that way. But then when it comes to the material basis, like if we have a neighborhood that's really hard up, right, and you want them to do better, if you're a city planner, you're like, oh, well, we should extend the metro line. We should plant some street trees, right? Do things that make that place better and nicer to live in. But unfortunately, because at least in the United States, we don't all live in Vienna. In the United States context, all land is subject to market forces. And so if you build a nice thing, the value goes up. And that has the unfortunate consequence most of the time of pushing people out is the rent goes up because most people that live in hard up neighborhoods don't own that neighborhood, which also I think comes up whenever there's an upright in the wake of police violence or something like that. You hear people say like, what? Why would they destroy their own neighborhood? And it's like, it's not theirs, right? Every day they're being told that it's not theirs. They can't mark it up. They can't own it. They can't do anything to it. And so like, of course you burn it down because every day you're told it's not yours. Then on the other hand is the fact that when you do provide resources, you get kicked out anyway. Like really disturbing scenarios where children, I've heard this, where like children look at a street, a newly planted street tree and get scared because it means that, that they have to leave. That's horrifying that, that a tree scares a kid. That's terrifying. So there is this material basis to everything that I do that is generally considered to be very aesthetic. Let's get to that point, is that there is a contradiction inherent in a capitalist urban system that David Harvey points out. There's actually three of them, but we won't cover all of them. One of them is cultural in that the globalizing forces tend to create their opposition. Sometimes it's really reactionary right-wing stuff, right? Like no more immigrants, stuff like that. But it can also be people who have lived in a downtrodden neighborhood for a really long time and then see their city start advertising themselves as this authentic place where you can experience all this culture that they never invested in, in the first place. And then it's like, oh, we need new people. We don't like those. We don't want those people that we've had for a while. I don't really want to invest in them. Although if you are able to afford this one loan, we can give you a nice restaurant, which you can then serve visitors. And in that instance, you get what Bell Hooks calls consuming the other, where you want a place where usually for white people who as being a part of the unmarked category, like whiteness is normal, then you're like, oh, I need to fill my empty white normal self with culture, which is outside of me. But I also at the same time have to reckon with the fact that I've been taught my whole life that Black people are less than me or are somehow more in touch with the earth or their culture or something, right? I, I should say that I'm white, right? But you get told those things all the time as a white person. But then when you want to experience culture, you're in this double bind of, I want to consume the other without really seeing them as a whole person. And she describes this as sampling stuff at an all-you-can-eat buffet, but it's people and culture. And, and that's not a one-to-one -one relationship. That's not a peer relationship. That is sadly what I think a lot of cities do when they want to try to pump up their image as authentic, is that they try to find something in their past or something in their present that is usually has an ethnic relationship to it and then sell that. And that's never always a one-to-one -one peer relationship. That's not always lifting people up. It's quite often putting them on a buffet table. Lauren, have you ever felt like you're on a buffet table? <laughs> yes. T take your time answering that question. <laughs> I, would, I, I would say yes. And especially in Southeast, which was obviously always known as the more rougher side of D.C. A lot of places there, a lot of millennial white people go and move there. The sense is like you still want that authentic experience. You like the union markets are there. You like the wharf, which is where a lot of black urban sellers, they go there, they sell their produce. A lot of new families are coming here. But then once the prices raise up, the families that used to be here can't live here anymore. Yeah. So then they're pushed out to Maryland. And people are calling it a good thing just because, oh, yeah, but all these places look better. But then the culture dies. The history dies. You forget what made the city what it was before you were present there. And it's a thought in the back of people's mind, which I don't blame people because I like having new locals here. And it's interesting seeing new faces and new people here. But it's also what happened to the D.C. I used to know. The yeah. D.C. of the art and there was more graffiti in this area before. Yes, gun violence is decreasing. Yes, these roads are like new and paved and it's awesome and it's better to drive through and it's more accessible for people. But then it's like now the culture is gone. Now the history is gone. Another paradox or, or contradiction that Harvey points out, which is that as an area gains prominence or desirability, the value of it goes up, money starts getting attracted to it. 
And then you, you get to a point where the only institutions or organizations or individuals that can afford to invest in that region or do business in it are Bank of America and Jamba Juice. You get a couple of really wealthy corporations that are basically the only thing that can work in there. And so the very thing that made it valuable in the first place is destroyed by capital accumulation. And, and it can't help itself. It's really a, a situation of individual bad gentrifiers coming in. Oh, I'm going to destroy this culture that I love so much. It's not that. It, it's everyone acting exactly as they're expected to, as they're enticed to. And, and the end result, usually after a couple of years or a decade, pretty much what you were describing under that time frame, it completely undermines itself. And then it just becomes a place where it's just a bunch of bank branches and, and chain restaurants. And so to that question of how can we improve our capitalist models, I don't know where you favor ideally a Nordic model, or, but do you have to sustain this illusion that capitalism has been working well for, I don't know how many decades, but the wages are flat, reduced quality of life, access to healthcare, basic services. And then this all came to light during the pandemic. So how can we learn from other capitalists and economic models and how could we be doing more to uh, address the damage of capitalism? Yeah, wow. I am of the opinion that capitalism is not reformable, but in the medium term, I do gain a lot of insight into reading about Red Vienna in the interwar years. So here you have an issue where Austria's national government is far to the right and they love their capitalists, but the actual city government of Vienna is our social democrats. First, they have to realize that they have to do a couple things. They have to avoid capital flight while also providing services for their constituents that are incredibly expensive. So what they do is they say, we will raise taxes on a lot of luxury items, right? Like for every butler, you have to give us you know, another hundred bucks or something. They raise money that way. And then they say, don't worry though, you're going to make this money up with cheaper labor costs, because what we're going to do is invest this into non-commodified housing. And they build, still to this day, what I think is one of the, still one of the largest uh, apartment blocks in the world called the Karl Marx Hof, appropriately enough. All right? And in there, they steeply reduce the cost of housing, not only because they've controlled the cost of housing in their own construction, but now they've completely changed the market, right? You can't compete when the state gives really, really cheap housing. Nothing else can really work. So in a lot of ways, I, I think that could be really useful because it, it avoids capital flight while also providing real resources. Fundamentally changes how markets act afterward. So I think that's really useful in general. You know, I don't call myself like a Georgist or something, but I, I think taxing land or finding a way to deal with the value of land is essential for anything that would even look like capitalism and still be amenable to human flourishing. So what are your feelings exactly on, I believe that maybe there's a, a third way between Marxism. Is that what you're defining your position as? Sure, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so this search for authenticity, the search for meaning in our life that's kind of sapped out of it by our capitalist models or the commodification of culture is one that interests you. And when you said you wanted to speak about ghosts, I thought this is very left. <laughs> this is very left of field. I thought we were yeah. going to have an urban planning conversation. And so tell us what ghosts reveal about our society. And they're very popular. And there's this ghost adventures. I, I don't follow all of that, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you for indulging me. Yeah. So first I have to defend why we would talk about ghosts in a conversation about urban planning and the uh, capitalism and all that. So I, I am a huge fan of this really goofy show. It's on, in America, it's on the Travel Channel. It is their most popular show, last I looked. It's called Ghost Adventures. And it is a handful of bros, I, as in like they're really masculine dudes, wear very tight black shirts and like to basically scare themselves in abandoned buildings. They put on a night vision camera and they walk around and they're like, oh, did you hear that? And they turn on all these widgets and devices that make all these weird sounds. And they're like, oh, that means there's a ghost here. And, you know, and they see things and they, they try to capture it on video. And, they, and some things they debunk, which is very important for their credibility later on because they're like, oh, there's some things I see that I don't think are ghosts. But the thing that I, I want to think about is that, one, why is this on the travel channel? along with shows about great uh, snorkeling destinations and stuff like that. And the point is that ghosts are sort of the cipher or index of the past. It are often things that may not even be nice. It, it usually falls under the, the term of dark tourism, where you go to a place 
not because it's happy or cool or, or pretty. You go to it because it's meaningful and perhaps because the meaning is a memory of something very evil or bad. But in terms of ghost adventures, what they're usually doing is going to a rundown town in the American West or Southwest and saying, there are ghosts here. This is creepy, which usually means you should come if you're interested in this kind of thing, right? There is something here that you can't get anywhere else is usually the thing that they, that they have to convince you of is that this place is unique. It has a specific history. And that is essential in capitalist land markets because land doesn't work like any other commodity, even though we have to, under capitalism, it has to be treated like a commodity. And by a commodity, we mean something that is self-similar to other things in its class, and that can then have a set value that can set a price. But unlike, say, an iPhone, where each one is self-similar, there is a set price by the manufacturer, you can increase supply uh, to meet demand, to work with that price. You can't do that with land. You can't really make more land. You can't make them all the same because each parcel of land is, it's also inextricably connected to all other parcels of land. So if one parcel of land right next to yours is bad, the price of yours goes down, which is not true. If your iPhone screen cracks and you're sitting next to me, that does not impact the, the resale price of my phone. And what stuff like ghosts do is that they're an attempt to push the uniqueness of a place just a little bit in one direction. It doesn't necessarily have to be for tourism. It can just be like, this place used to be something and it could be again. And so the ghost might not necessarily be the, the draw, right? The thing that you actually go there for, but it is a way to tell a story about the past of a place that might be intriguing to people. It's an advertising of why a place at least used to be meaningful and why it could be meaningful again. Hi everyone, my name is Lauren Chiname and I'm a rising junior at NYU, majoring in English with the creative writing track. I was delighted to participate in the conversation. Mr. Pink's work interests me because it centers on culture and people through topics like city design. For me, as someone invested in culture through media and storytelling, through things like writing and content creation, it's mind blowing to me to think of culture through the physical things you walk past every day as opposed to the arts, which is the typical mode. Even more so when you think of this pertaining to your own city, as opposed to somewhere far off you might visit like Paris, London, or Jamaica, or Hawaii. It's something so simple, but so easy to forget in the rush of everyday life. Each building, each property, each brick tells a story. It's something we should remember to cherish. Something that stood out to me in this interview is the way that cities market themselves in a way similar to influencers. They need more people to visit for the sake of their economy, but also gaining renowned name and fame. This is done more easily if there is a certain draw, like how influencers have to pick a topic or brand to draw people to them. Cities have to do the same. For example, by choosing certain brand or aesthetic to build around. But in order to do that, you forget to build for the people and culture that already exist. It really brings to mind that question of who you really are building for. Those visiting, the tourist, or those who live there. This is a good example of the importance of intention behind creation, and it's something I'll really think about as I move forward through different cities around the country and the world. Another thing that stood out to me was the tidbit about ghosts. It was honestly an unexpected topic, but something that aroused many things to mind for me. For example, it's easy to take ghost stories at face value. It's a simple way to get a thrill or a scare from some fantasy. But that fantasy is grounded in fact and specific histories. It's the background of these ghosts and who they were and where they came from that make them interesting. Not necessarily the idea of the paranormal or supernatural entity themselves. Ghosts tell stories about the land and culture, which is what is truly interesting about the place. This is an odd turnaround, but this shows for me, at least, that fantastical elements don't work for a proper background, which is something I'll keep in mind in my future work. That's all I have. Without further ado, let's get back to the interview. So we all are looking for meaning. For me, although I find it intriguing, the way every culture has a different relationship to ghosts. And part of it is I understand in America, almost an alternative religion as well. I prefer to make my own spiritual journey through the arts, but it is fascinating how it reflects that feeling of the loss of history. And I wondered if you knew also the demographics of the audience for Ghost Adventures. So to be honest, it's a lot of young women. 
who I, I think that the hosts look quite good in their tight black shirts. But also, I think there is, you mentioned a, a kind of religion. I do think it, there is something approaching religion. I don't want a sociologist to jump down my throat about how this isn't exactly religion or something like that. But there are sanctifying, there's definitely a lot of ritual involved. There's a lot of meaning creation that has to come from the rhetorical act, not from any other source, really, which I think are all hallmarks of religion. But because it has the sheen of science to it, because you have all these gizmos that beep and whir and have weird name sounds come back to indicate that ghosts are present. I think the comforting feeling for a, a contemporary, we'll just stick with American, right? That that this isn't woo-woo, like new age, like totally out in the clouds, religious stuff. There is a scientific basis for it, which sometimes helps people think that they're rational, right? Which I think is always a concern for, I think, a lot of people. But yeah, I think that in general, the interest in ghosts or the supernatural does lend itself to the, the possibility that we can both live in these very modern, rational societies that quote unquote believes in science, whatever that means, but then also have something unexplainable. And it's fun that it's not really explainable. And that unexplainable thing is also about the past, how any place can be meaningful, which is really important. If you're, you know, it, it grow up in the suburbs like I did, where it's just like, this is a no place, right? No one else knows about this place. It doesn't have a lot of meaning, but if you can create a story that only happened here, then and it starts to feel like there's a reason that I inhabit this part of the planet. And in a modern society where there isn't a ton of meaning out there, people are wondering like, what, what's it all for? Why am I doing this? My job doesn't seem to give me much satisfaction. I don't find organized religion to be particularly interesting or have the right answers. There, there's no labor unions around me to really create solidarity with other people. I'm not into sports, right? Like you try to find all these things where meaning exists. And for some people, it ends up being in very localized histories, which can often mean the supernatural. You talk about tourists in a lot of your pieces. What would you define as like tourists of today? Yeah. So this is where I get to plug my book. A book coming out early 2023 called The City Authentic. In there, I do a couple things like what they there's an entire chapter on defining authenticity and, and it takes at least a chapter. And there I, I use this topology by the tourism scholar Ning Wang, who says that there are basically three kinds. There's objective authenticity. Sometimes ghost hunters do that. Objective authenticity is usually more like art historians, right? You know, like, is this Monet, this thing in front of me that purports to be a Monet, actually a Monet? And you go through the, the chain of custody, you get other people to look at the brush strokes, you know, like, okay, this is definitely a Monet. Right. So it's objective. You're finding evidence and you're making a conclusion. Then there's a subjective authenticity or constructed authenticity. And in that one, it's really about meeting expectations. Right. It's if there's a ton of marketing that says a trip to Hawaii means lays and hula skirts and coconuts, and you get all three of those things, when you get there, you're like, ah, I had an authentic experience. And that's how you can have stuff like Donald Trump or a McDonald's hamburger. You can have an authentic Donald Trump experience, right? Or you can say Donald Trump is authentic, which people say a lot, which is weird if you think about what is basically the most famous person to ever exist. It's Donald Trump. And so how could he be authentic when authenticity is always about these really intimate connections and being unique? And the answer to that is that he fulfills expectations usually too well. And then the third thing is, which I think answers your question about what is the current tourist, right? Is this existential authenticity. And what that means is that you're not even really looking to meet expectations or validate that the thing in front of you is what it says it is. You are trying to recreate who you think you should be in a time that is disconnected from your usual life. So what do I mean by that? You're on vacation, right? You're on vacation mode. No one's expecting you to do whatever your job is. Most of the people around you don't know what your job is. You're in some place that you don't live. You're disconnected from lots of things that make everyday life what it is. And instead you may you know, go to the aquarium because originally you thought your whole life you would be a professional scuba diver. And then you found out that isn't really a real thing. And you had to get a job as an accountant. Right. But deep down, you see yourself as having something to do with living underwater, like seeing fish and whatnot. And so in that moment, the existential authenticity is being able to do what you knew you always would have done if other things didn't get in the way. That's deeply, deeply meaningful to people. And I think that is 
often what tourism is starting to move toward because one, we're a pretty jaded and suspicious society now, right? You, you get like all these things on the internet, like, oh, I don't know if that's real or not, or, you know, did, did, is it a deep fake, all that stuff. Even if that's not even true, everyone thinks it is. That we live in this world of, of make-believe and fakeness, and you want to get to something that's real, and what's more real than yourself, and the story that you tell to yourself about yourself. And if you can really connect that, you'll feel really good. And I do want to conflate Donald Trump with lots of these other things, which is that there are studies, I'm blanking on the specific one right now, but there are studies that show that politicians that use authenticity in their campaigning, one, it's effective. Two, it's most effective for conservative right wings, and it's much less effective for anyone centered to the left. I think a big part of that, here I'm, I'm doing some educated speculating, is that the liberal to moderate liberal, anything up to starting talking about redistributing land, anything from the center to, to that is sometimes it's called cosmopolitan or modern. And it's about taking individual relationships and turning them into professional ones or putting together what's called the strength of weak ties. I know you because you're my therapist or you're my student, or I see you at the grocery store. These are relationships that serve a function. And that is useful. You can get a ton of stuff done, but it's not usually very meaningful. And for a lot of people, the modernizing of society into forms and professionals and institutions is alienating. And they associate liberals, lowercase l, liberals with that alienation. Even though it might be provisioning resources, those resources give a specific but not real example, right? It's the difference between being able to now afford a frozen pie at the grocery store and your neighbor baking you a fresh pie. The same calories, very different meaning. For a conservative, they can say, I can give you the fresh pie. I can give you the neighbor taking care of you and you take care of them. Obviously, they can't. But they promised that. And that sounds wonderful, right? But it's fake because what they actually want is administration and, and for you to feel like you can express yourself without actually doing it, which is one of the core descriptions of fascism. I think it was Nietzsche that described it this way, right? That you replace actual material democratic authority of the population of the masses with the ability to feel as though you've been hurt. I think authenticity is really dangerous in that respect. I think, I think very well-intended, you know, left of center people should also be very, very concerned about the way that they use authenticity in their marketing materials for cities as well, because I think it all feeds the same thing. It's a dangerous game. I've always felt, I'm sure everyone feels, the moment you even call it by the name authenticity, it's already gone. I just, I wish there was another word and then that would become a buzzword. But what you describe is interesting because it seems almost with this division between conservative and democratic or conservative and liberal values in America and the way they vote, that underpinning the conservative voter, there's almost a, a want for a, not, not a monarch, but some kind of feel-good symbol that doesn't really have a role in politics. Yeah. Well, I mean, the big asterisk is, you know, whatever you consider to be a part of politics, you know, I, I don't know. But I, I do think there is definitely a desire to find a world creating mechanism, something where you can look at the utter chaos that's in the world right now, which is really all the time and bring order to it in a way that is both satisfying and also lets you accomplish very specific goals for yourself. And so if it is the re-election of Donald Trump or Marie Le Pen, not re-election, but you know, successful election of Marie Le Pen, or Marcos's just came back to the Philippines, right? In all of these cases, there's a desire to just feel like stuff is in control, which is also a good portion of why conspiracy theories also get really useful. Like the QAnon conspiracy theory, one of the many reasons that it's satisfying to people is that I'll put Russiagate in here too, honestly, let's be bipartisan about it in the American context is the, you know, the fact that you can feel something is in control. It might be malign, it might be against your interests, but there is an order to things instead of just utter chaos, which might actually be what's going on, where people who don't know how to run a government are in control running a government. That is sometimes the scarier reality. And so a desire for someone that can just cut through everything and say, here is an appeal to common sense. Let's just get things done. And I don't feel crazy anymore because someone really powerful also sees it that way. So I must be correct. And then two, because we're both correct, 
the correct solutions to social problems will now happen. And so I think there it's understandable that sometimes you do want a, a powerful figure to just take over because one, it provides stability and like a, a, a universe of meaning. And then two, things will actually might get better or at least they'll be different. Following up on that, this has to do with the whole grassroots or like very community-based idea or the imaginary community idea that's connected with Republican ideals versus liberal left-wing ideals connected to progress and like something that's available in the distant future. So there's a couple things. I'm going to use a, a dubious unity, as Foucault would call it, right, of, of the West, right? Europe, North America. There's been a disconnection between the, the theory producing arm of the left and the material basis of left power, which is labor. The two used to be very closely connected, that you have a theory of change and you enact it in the base of power of leftism, which is labor instead of capital. There are different places to put this starting point. Reasonable people can, can disagree about it, but we could say starting in the 60s and 70s, you get new social movements where you start to categorize what you care about. So like I care about the environment, right? Which means that I don't care about race or LGBTQ plus rights, right? You know, stuff like that. And then each one kind of takes up their own project, disconnected both from the material basis of political power of labor while gaining some more capital. And you get this liberal move to the NGO class or you get a human rights campaign or I don't want to disparage them specifically or World Wildlife Fund or something like that, right? You get these NGOs whose job it is to not only solve a problem, but actually to kind of maintain it or at least get everyone to keep thinking about the problem as such, mostly in the way that they are set up to deal with it. There's always a ton of fundraising to be done. I bring all this up because what you were talking about is multidimensional self and the singular kind of thing that isn't very inspiring. That separation happened when we stopped thinking about the material basis of political power and theory, we stop thinking of them together. And then you have to make that decision. And it's a bad decision. You want both. Of course you want both. You want to be able to say, I want universal health care, and here's the inspiring reason why. And there's a big problem because one, the left doesn't have the political power in the United States to demand universal health care, but they do have several electeds and popular media figures that say very inspiring things about it. But then when you're like, okay, I'm ready to do it. Right. You're like, okay, well, you can join one of several different organizations that will spam your inbox and then give you really no clear specific steps to getting it done. That's a terrible problem to have, but it's true. And it makes you very depressed. And that's, again, where I think a lot of people start looking other places for meaning is they're like, oh, it's impossible. Social change is impossible. So I might as well at least start feeling like I have a full life. And there you get sort of like a hedonism of at least I'm going to live in an urban downtown where everyone else agrees with me that the world is messed up. I can at least feel a little bit more sane that way. And also I'm not just living in some sort of perfunctory cookie cutter ranch house in the middle of nowhere and going to a job that's also not meaningful. At least I lived an authentic life at the end of history. It's just this bad consolation prize. So you're feeling we're at the end of history. Going back, just like the, the, the practical, how to get it done, impossible questions, but we're living in the century of the city. Across the globe, cities are growing at an unprecedented rate and now are home to the majority of the world's populations. And by 2050, it's estimated that two out of three people worldwide will live in cities. So as you think about our major challenges, people want to know what their future is going to look like in terms of transport, climate, housing, education, working at home storm surges, all these things, as you envisage the cities of the future, what kind of programs have you seen that are taking place and need to take place to make the rapid transition towards sustainability and mitigate climate change? There's a couple of things. One is we just, we have to change how we connect to land, who gets to control it, who owns it, who gets to build on it. That very fundamentally needs to change because in the Reagan in the United States, Thatcher in the UK, we got a massive export of the mortgage system, right? Where land is owned by usually a bank institution that is then paid by the person that uses the actual land in the form of a loan, you know, like a mortgage. And this has created one, a very conservative landscape. People start thinking very conservatively when they own an asset, right? Like a financial asset that they really otherwise couldn't afford. There are tons of government subsidies that make it possible for anyone to possibly own a piece of land in the way that most people you know, inhabit the land and own it. 
we need to change that because there are some things called flood zones that flood and what we called like hundred year floods are now 10 year floods. You need to be able to make concrete specific mitigation or something else, some, some sort of change to that land. And right now we're pretty stuck in, in not just the United States, but in many places where no authority can say we need to change the city in XYZ ways in order to avoid future catastrophe and flood zones. We can't do that. And then on the second part is, well, how do you actually solve something like that? I think a big way to, to do it is to start looking at, again, labor power, the power of working people to have control over their surroundings, which get, gets us back to the right of the city. We have to decenter technology as the saving grace for climate catastrophe. All of the technologies necessary to solve a great deal of problems have already been done. The issue is having the political will to make them actually happen. Capital won't do that because it's more advantageous financially to have the problem continually move and then just kind of fix it here and then move it over there and then fix it over there and then move it back over here, right? That's a geographer, Neil Smith calls this the, the, you know, the seesaw effect. Capitalism can never solve a problem. It can just move it around and temporarily patch it. At the very core, changing cities is going to mean changing how we do politics in them what kind of decisions cities get to make. This changes pretty widely across countries and even states within the United States where cities can either get the benefit of the doubt that they get to decide what happens within their jurisdiction unless explicitly stated otherwise. In the United States, that's called home rule, which can be really useful, but it also sets up this race to the bottom in a lot of cases where they do not have the resources to, say, have a legal team put together to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Amazon, or Alibaba or Tesla, any of these enormous companies, they're like, oh, we're going to build a factory in your town. And if you don't, we're going to build it in unincorporated land just outside of it. So you better give us all these tax breaks. Again, it's going back to this freedom to hurt yourself, you know, right? To, to work against your own interests is the only freedom that a lot of cities don't have. And so it's unfortunate. It's not a very satisfying answer. But if cities are going to combat climate change, it's all political changes because the political changes can bring about the degrowth, the moving away from cars as the, the centerpiece of transportation, the mitigating the problems that we know we've already locked in. All these things need to happen. And I think a majority of people, it's an empirical question, but I believe the majority of people do want those things to happen. They want the planet to continue going <laughs> or at least be habitable. Right. You know, call me selfish, but yeah, I'd like the planet to keep working. I keep all my stuff here and that needs to happen. But those changes can only be realized with some significant changes to how cities are governed and their relationship to corporations, transnational actors and the, the states that they reside in. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of challenges. And I'm just wondering, because you talked a lot about getting in touch with who our authentic selves or the real you or the, the person that we are when we dream and we're not in living our professional lives. So with all this stuff in your head, how do you reconnect to that? And as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like them to know, preserve and remember? I, I think one, we have to go back to one concept that Hegel brought us, which was the, the freedom of the void, which once the enlightenment takes hold, it carves out this sort of transcendental meaning of your life. It takes it away because before you were, you know, like my last name's Smith. That's because I'm a blacksmith. My dad was a blacksmith. My son will be a blacksmith, right? And even if you're a bad blacksmith, you still were it. You still did it. And that's the beginning and end of meaning is that you fulfilled a role that was given to you. You were a peg and you went into the correct hole that's shaped just for you. And Hegel says that after the enlightenment, we said, you can be anything you want to be. Isn't that horrifying? That means you can fail to not only be the thing that you're supposed to be, you can fail to be any, to be a person, right? You, you can fail to like fully utilize this beautiful freedom that was given to you. And, and so he calls it the freedom of a void because you could just go into nothingness. And for a long time, we've been filling that void with some really questionable stuff. Nationalism, racism, misogyny. These are really pernicious social problems because they do a good job of filling that void a lot of the time. I'm better than most people for XYZ reason that no one can change. The color of your skin, what body parts you were born with, all these things that you can't really change. You're going to just say that those are meaningful and, and so on. So when I think about what sorts of 
changes need to be made to start building a better world. I start really with that meaning creation in concert with what Lauren said earlier of actual specific changes that need to be made to your physical material world, immediate world around you. If you can do both at the same time, you can find a really meaningful thing that also gives you stuff. Man, that's a winning combination. But what that looks like is a lot of groundwork with individuals cooperating and starting to grab back land, the value of their labor, really just those two things would actually be really good. Uh, and so that's usually where I go. I try to stay inspired by my students who try to be really normal in abnormal times, really wild stuff that, God, I can't imagine. I was just having dinner with colleagues yesterday and we just, I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to be 19 right now. And it'd be awful. I, I would hate it even more than I hated being 19. And I only had to go through the Great Recession. I just had to learn what a mortgage-backed security was and why it ruined my life, right? And then that's it. But there seemed to be something a lot more fundamental going on here, which can also mean that everything's on the table and that everything can change and everything will change. And you might as well try to make it redound to your benefit. And that's scary. Yeah, it's the challenge of maturity and striving also at the same time to maintain your innocence. So thank you, David A. Banks, for the courage of looking into the void with us, helping us understand the complexities of globalization and the challenges that cities face, your reflections on history and the sense of continuity, and sharing your insights into how we can create more equitable, sustainable cities while still being places where individuality, creativity, and complexity can flourish. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet and the Creative Process Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yam Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Lauren Chiname with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Lauren Chiname. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, please just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.